This is Jason Dennington from the Nonprofit Hour Show by the Media Institute for Social Change. On our show on Monday, November 16th, we featured the HHH Foundation and Notes of Hope with our guests Becky Bronstein and Jenny Conley. The Notes of Hope event was a benefit concert that was held the previous Friday, and it featured music and storytellers to benefit the HHH Foundation in memory of Hugh Housen and Bethany Hartung. It's an organization that raises money for the OHSU Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology Program. As part of that Nonprofit Hour show, we featured some of the music and storytellers that were part of the live event at the Alberta Rose Theatre. There were so many great performances that night, however, it became difficult to actually narrow down a selection that had to fit into the show. So we decided to include all of the full and unedited performances here on our SoundCloud page. Please be aware that in some circumstances, unedited does mean that there may be language that we were unable to include in our broadcast on air. For myself, one of the most meaningful parts of attending the event was hearing the storytellers share their experiences with the audience. Here is one of those storytellers now, Remy Newhouse. I am very, very excited to introduce to you our first official storyteller for the evening. He is an amazing young man. He is a good friend of mine. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a huge welcome to the wonderful, the fabulous, Remy Newhouse. I almost didn't make it. There's quite a spread back there in the green room. <laughs> so, how should it be, you abnormal blob of germ cells? Should I love to hate you or hate to love you? Thank you. My story began like most stories you hear. Mine began with the bedwetting. During the summer of 1998, I was a second-year senior at the University of Montevallo, a state liberal arts college south of Birmingham. My theater training had scored me a gig working in the hot Alabama sun, performing three music review shows a day. I had a rockin' body, bleached-out hair. I was living a wild life and not considering the consequences. And I was wetting the bed at night. I had no idea what was going on. So I shared this with my cousin. Cuz, it sounds like diabetes. You should get tested. That was not what I wanted to hear. He has battled the disease his whole life, so I trusted his input. I went to the doctor, got tested. When the results came back negative, I just went on my way as if nothing was wrong. That is, until the vision problems I had a good 30-minute drive from work back to my apartment near campus, 
and I had started noticing I was having issues seeing the interstate signs up ahead. I started squinting a lot. Recognizing that, I went to the eye doctor, got tested. I had astigmatism. I had never worn glasses before, so naturally I had to pick out the hottest style frames available. Three more visits over a year and a half ended with the same results. The glasses never lasted long enough. Later that year, I completely lost my libido. I couldn't get aroused or even masturbate. 22 years old, college student, gay, and now a huge wrench in my social life. A huge wrench. I started sleeping more than usual. I'm sure I was a little depressed, but I never said it aloud. I thought it was strong that I could handle it. When the headaches began, they lasted maybe a day or two. As they worsened, I would be missing classes. Couldn't get out of bed, or maybe I was just curled up on the floor, not answering the door as I was experiencing colored lines and spots in my eyes, and along with vomiting. When I was home for spring break the next year, I was out with my parents. When I felt a headache come on, I asked them to pull over so I could vomit in a gravel parking lot. They were standing around me. I could hear them. I was trying to talk to them, but I couldn't understand me. They couldn't understand me. A trip to the eye doctor a few weeks later opened that door to that aha moment. During the course of the exam, the ophthalmologist suggested, maybe you've got diabetes. I thought, no, I don't have diabetes. I've been tested. So we went directly to the family doctor's office. I got tested. When the results came back negative, the doctor asked that I stay around so I could test this nasal spray called called Desmopressin to see if it suppressed my need to drink lots of fluid and go to the bathroom. After about five minutes, for the first time in over a year, I never had that urge to urinate and drink lots of water. The doctor left the room, and when he came back in, he said, you need to have an MRI. He didn't say exactly why. Maybe he didn't want to alarm me without having all the facts. The MRI was scheduled after my spring semester finals on Friday of that week. It was May 5th, 2000. I was 24 years old. My MRI had been that morning, and after chowing down on a fine lunch of Alabama Mexican cuisine, we got a call from the doctor's office to come back. The next thing I knew, I was in the exam room. My parents sat across from me. Then the doctor came in, and at some point during his talking, he said, you have a mass in your brain. I should learn to listen to doctors more carefully. I was thinking like a Catholic mass or something like that. (laughs) The context was totally lost to me. The only thing I felt inside was relief. I had an answer, finally. I didn't cry for myself, but... I did find that I was crying for those around me, my parents, because they were in pain and fear. The look in my mother's eyes, I will never forget that. It's hard to see those you love in pain and fear over your mass. What happened to me during the eight months of treatment and recovery Well, that's a long story to tell here and requires a six-pack of Deschutes Obsidian Stout. I would be happy to share it with you as long as you realize you would need your own six-pack. Okay, since you all did pay to be here, here's a quick rundown. 
I went back to school for a three-week term. When I talked to my grandfather on the phone, he asked me, well, are you going to sit around and feel sorry for yourself or are you going to go about your life and fight? So I went back to school. I went in for my biopsy two weeks later. And then was in the hospital for five and a half weeks, mostly in the neurointensive care unit. If you've never had a brain biopsy, you really don't know what you're missing, I tell you that. <laughs> a ring, halo, is placed over your head and fastened down with pins. A hole for the biopsy needle is made along the hairline. My scar is right here. It used to be at my hairline, but for some reason it keeps moving down my forehead. <laughs> I, I was awake, aware the whole time. All I could see were three surgical masks leaning over me. My head would jerk from side to side every now and then, and they would talk to me. I don't remember what they said. Then the biopsy was over, and I had a headache. The biopsy showed what the neurosurgeon believed, based on its location and how long it had been growing. Primary hypothalamic germinoma. Treatment would be chemotherapy and radiation. Because of its location, surgery was out of the question. The only time I went under the knife was when a VP shunt was implanted to help combat against hydrocephalus and blockage of one of my ventricles. My body was fighting on several fronts. That is why I stayed in the NICU. A later diagnosed pituitary diuretic disorder called diabetes insipidus made it hard to keep my sodium levels, and which is why I had excess thirst and urination. Lethargy became a middle name. I would often wake up in the NICU after having a private room. I know we all have our horror stories. So for all you guys and gals out there, I have just one word for you. Catheters. <laughs> you get the picture. I quickly learned the ropes and about the numbing gel. If I didn't see that numbing gel, I ran the risk of slapping the bitch to the floor if he or she tried to insert that thing in me. I was not fooling around. However, I did understand the necessity and the convenience. You know, it's like, eh. You know, five and a half weeks is a long time to lay in a hospital bed and think about things. I thought a lot about what my life was going to be like moving forward, what my perspective was going to be. My last week in the hospital was having my first treatment of chemotherapy. I had a nice, posh, private room with wood panel walls and floors, not the trailer variety. <laughs> and a shower. The first shower I took, I think I spent 45 minutes in there. I sat on the shower stool, corralling on my tubes in one hand and letting the hot water run over my head. If I could have orgasmed, I would have but my extremely hypogonads would not permit it. <laughs> when my five-day treatment was over, I went home for two weeks. That was the routine for the next two and a half months. Home, hospital, home, hospital, and finally home to rest for a month. And then I spent three weeks having radiation treatments. What can I say about radiation treatments? to the brain they suck they suck 
They suck. To prepare for being zapped, a mask is made for your, sorry, made for your face that is so tight that you feel like a Beverly Hills trophy wife. And you can't really talk. All you can say is, when they ask, are you ready? Try not to move your head. You won't feel anything. Ha. Do radiology students go through this shit in medical school? Three weeks of the metallic taste in the mouth, the smell of ozone, the white light, and the closed eyes, and then the nausea. I was never as sick as I was during radiation. And the fast-track baldness feature. It all came out in one day. I looked down at my hands, and they were covered in quarter-inch hairs. Bald is sexy, but not when created in that manner. Mm -mm. A few weeks after that, on December 3rd, 2000, I had my last MRI of the year, and I was told I was all clear and that I could, could return to school. I went back to school in January and immediately began tying up loose ends with my professors. I was a couple classes shy of my BFA in music theater. I had some catching up to do. I was able to ex- uh, arrange an exempt from one of my required dance classes. This newly sexy, hot prednisone body was not going to handle beginner ballet right out of the gate. I tell you that much. <laughs> No. All coursework was approved and I was allowed to graduate. I went home for three months and I landed here in Portland in May of 2002. For the first 10 years of recovery, I managed. I had to. When your endocrine system no longer functions like a normal person and you're on five different hormone replacement therapies, you sleep 12 to 14 hours per day, You have to be a good manager. And yet I was lacking something. And then the day came when I ran across a brochure for the Portland Brain Tumor Walk and I felt a shift. And when the day of the walk arrived, I connected with so many people who had gone what I'd through, what I had gone through, what I had experienced. And when I went home, I cried. For the first time, I really cried. For me, my emotional recovery was just beginning. Sharing battle scars and stories is a lot to have to process. Fast forward a couple months later and into this very theater, I was sitting out there for production of the one-man show, This is Cancer. At a point toward the end of the show, the actor, costumed as a brain tumor or some sort of tumor, invited a woman up on stage and gave her a foam pool toy and and said that she needed to lash out about how she felt about cancer. He had just spent an hour and a half extolling the virtues cancer had bestowed upon mankind since the beginning of time. I thought, wow, I wish I could have come up here on stage. I would have beat the shit out of him. (laughs) And then asked for my money back. When I got home, I cried again. I cried because I had begun an experience of my journey of processing my relationship to cancer. Neurologists are smart folk. The word cancer was never used during my diagnosis or treatment, only mass or tumor. That was smart. It saved me then. And because I didn't cry for myself at the time, I went into the hospital without the stigma of cancer hanging over me. 
But 10 years later, I was having to come face to face with it now. I was no longer a brain tumor survivor. I was a cancer survivor. Wow. Knowing that really made me smile. I mean, being a cancer survivor, it's a badge of honor. I was told once to keep a journal of my experience so I would never forget, but I don't have to. It's there every single day in the mirror. I would compare it to someone who survived a car accident and can visualize every nanosecond of it. Well, cancer was my car crash. What happened for me on the inside upon owning that word has been nothing more than life-changing. I now connect and share journeys with so many more people now. And then, thank you. And then there is that thing called empathy. Empathy is a bitch. Whenever I hear a story in my cancer group or I see a child going through chemo, my heart aches so often and it breaks into two parts. One part pleads, why? Fuck you, cancer, fuck you. And the other half, it smiles. It's a smile that says, I know, I understand, I am with you. You are not alone. I find a sad beauty in that. I so wish I could take away all the aches and pains of those going through cancer. I really do. I want that superpower. After 10 years of recovery and trying to figure out where I fit into the grand scheme of things, it's the empathy that is always the hardest process. And wouldn't you know, just when I thought my journey wasn't going to take a turn. In mid-August of this year, I began experiencing symptoms of a possible shunt failure. That fear has always been in the back of my mind. So on October 8th, I call and leave a message with Dr. Newell's office at OHSU. His assistant calls me back. We talked I told her what I was feeling on the right side of my face and behind my ear. She also thought shunt failure. She asked if I could get checked out immediately. I only live a block from Legacy Good Sam Hospital, so I went down and had some x-rays done, a CT scan, and some MRIs. And then I waited for three hours in a room until the admitting doctor came in to talk to me. The MRI shows a very large tumor here above your eye. The neurosurgeon on call has seen the scans and he wants to take it out. Okay. Um, Okay, really? Take it out? Yes, it needs to come out tomorrow or Saturday. Um, uh, uh, Well, I'd like, I'm not letting you go home, but you have to decide what you want to do. Uh, you could have a seizure and die. Oh, really? Uh, can I? Uh, can I call some people? 
span of maybe five minutes, I never want to relive. Got on the phone and started spreading the good news. Yay. I made the decision during a chat with my aunt that I would stay in the hospital and have the surgery. Yay. The craniotomy came and went on Friday, October 9th. I woke up in the, I, in the ICU, and then on Saturday I was transferred to a private room. I once again had to lay in a hospital bed and think about the future. And I cried a little in the dark. Thankfully, the tumor was removed. All I, I won't have to have any chemotherapy or radiation. Oh, yeah, I now have this gnarly, awesome scar across my forehead. The staples were taken out before Halloween. That sucked. I was hoping to have some fun. I was enlightened at a follow-up neurology appointment last week. Apparently, meningiomas have a very high recurrence rate. My radiation treatments in 2000 are trying to kill me now and may try again in the future. That is something I don't want to have on my mind. And so here I am again looking for all the smiles and the madness. But do you know what I can appreciate about it all? It's that I live life. I experience life. I've done more in my life than the average person could ever dream of doing, of accomplishing. Who else can say that they've beaten brain cancer twice and have found a way to live fighting the fight I fight it every day the baggage I carry because of cancer well it doesn't matter I'm still getting used to this new rolling bag I've acquired what matters is that I am here that I am present that I stay connected. I still have a long way to go. My recovery will be lifelong. I still cry, but I know it is good for me. Do I wish I could go back 15 or so years before the cancer and start all over again while bypassing all the damn drama? Sure. Who wouldn't? And yet, I am thankful for my journey. I am thankful to be alive. I am thankful that my eyes are wide open and seeing the world again. I am thankful for the people I've met along the way. I am thankful for so many things. I am thankful that I have a voice to give hope, to promote awareness, advocacy, all the great things that we've joined here tonight to do. So, how about it, cancer? Should I love to hate you or hate to love you. Yes. Thank you.
Once again, that was one of the performances from the Notes of Hope Benefit Concert for the HHH Foundation at the Alberta Rose Theatre on November 13th. If you'd like to find out more about the annual Notes of Hope Concert or the HHH Foundation, and to find out how you can donate and help the cause, you can visit notesofhopepdx.org.